Ever thought, a bit of, uh, thought of a bit of uh, cosmetic surgery? Apparently, um, plastic surgeons are soon to be issued with a checklist to help them weed out the increasing number of patients who have become addicted to cosmetic surgery. Seems that patients develop a dependency on continually having their appearance altered and improved. It's an, it's an addiction called body dysmorphic disorder. People spend massive amounts of money on repeated procedures. Sharon Osborne of the Osborne family fame apparently has spent some $750,000 on plastic surgery. It's not much of the original Sharon left, really. One psychologist described the problem like this. People can become addicted to the anticipation, the excitement and the attention they receive. There is a short-lived result of feeling fabulous. But the post-procedure high fades, life goes back to normal and all the mundane problems come back. So you need to go for another fix. Seems lots of people are obsessed with having better bodies. It's actually an obsession that the Bible encourages, or at least doesn't really totally discourage us, except of course we need to set our sights higher than our bottoms or our legs or our noses because the better body that God promises to his people, well the buzz will never fade. Life will never ever go back to normal when you get this body. Not one of our mundane problems will ever return. It's that body that we're going to be thinking about tonight in the second half of chapter, of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So please make sure you have your Bible open at that passage that Liz just read for us. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin and I'm pretty chuffed with my first point that I've just covered. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Thank you that we can trust it. And thank you that it speaks to us of big things, Father. And so we pray that you give us minds and hearts ready to grapple with big things. Help us to concentrate if we're feeling tired. Help us to concentrate if we're feeling distracted. We just want to hear you, Father. We want to know what's true, and we want to know what's true about the future. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you might remember, you might remember from last time that in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is dealing with an error among the Corinthian Christians, an error that denied the resurrection of believers. Last week, first half of chapter 15, Paul strongly reaffirmed that just as Christ rose from the dead bodily, so will all those who belong to him. In fact, Christ has been raised, Paul said, back in the first half of the chapter, as the first fruits, as the anticipation of all those who belong to him and all who will be raised on that day when he comes back. But see, having affirmed that truth, having stated that wonderful truth, the Apostle is anticipating now a further question from the Corinthians. We can see it in verse 35. Verse 35, But someone may ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? It's almost like the Corinthians have the idea of dead Christians being raised to life when Jesus comes back and they've got this image in their mind, sort of what we might see in a horror movie, Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that. The Corinthians seem to have this idea, this image of all these decayed and rotted corpses and skeletons sort of walking around, which sounds horrific. Is that what we are to expect when the dead are raised? That seems to be their question. 
Well, you'd be glad, I, I hope, to know, no, that's not what we are to expect. Our resurrection body, it won't be ghoulish, it'll be glorious, as the Apostle goes on to point out. And to help his explanation, he turns first to the garden. So have a look at verse 36. Verse 36, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. See, Paul says, look, the answer is in front of you. It's all, think about gardening, is what Paul says. When you sow a seed into the soil, what emerges from the ground? Well, no longer a seed, but in fact the seed you've planted has been transformed into a plant. A wheat seed sown into the soil is transformed into a wheat plant, a tomato seed into a tomato plant. In fact, Paul says in verse 38, God gives the seed a body just as he has determined And so why would it be any different when it comes to the resurrection of believers on that last day? Why would we not expect that the body that is raised would be transformed from the one that was sown? I mean, why would God be limited to just one type of body? That's what Paul's saying. In fact, really, when you think about it, there are all sorts of different bodies. Lots of body variety in creation, Paul says. And so in verse 39, Paul sort of steps out of, out of the garden and into the world. And he sort of looks around the world and he says, well, men have one type of flesh, animals another, birds, fish, they're down there. Lots of variety. But even then, you know, well, they're just earthly bodies. There's even more variety than that. And so from the world, Paul moves on to consider the heavens, the skies. Have a look at verse 40 with me. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and stars differ from stars in splendor. See Paul's point? He is saying that, look, God specializes in variety. God specializes in giving bodies that are perfectly suited to their situation. And so it is, he says, with the resurrection of the dead. Spells it out from verse 42. Have a look at it with me. Verse 42. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. First thing to take note of here, when the Bible speaks of the resurrection of the dead, we're not talking about the same body that was put into the ground coming back to life. No, no, we're talking about a transformation into something far more splendid. As the earthly bodies have their splendor, as the heavenly bodies have their splendor, so our resurrection body will have its own unique splendor. And what a splendor it will be. The body that we now have is perishable, isn't it? It shrinks, it gets saggy and baggy and things stop working and things drop off. It's perishable. We know that, don't we? we? We live in it. But our resurrection body will be transformed into an imperishable body, a body that will flourish and not decay, a body perfectly suited to our new eternal home. Now, our body, Paul says, is one of dishonor. It's humiliation. It's a lowly body compared to the glorious body that it will be transformed into. And that's the second thing we need to take note of here. Our resurrection body will be a body. 
Our resurrection is not one of some sort of formless spirit existence. We won't be Casper. Not at all. We won't be ghosts. We won't be spirits. Our future will be one of inhabiting a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, a new creation that's not groaning, that's not broken, and that's not stained with sin. And so God will will give to his people, those who belong to Jesus, a body, a transformed body, perfectly suited to that new, sinless, forever future. It's a bit too big to grab, isn't it? It's completely out of our experience. But we know it will be wonderful. Like a seed sown in the soil, transformed by God into a plant, so the body sown will be raised, transformed, ready for the eternity that Christ has prepared for us to enjoy with him. Just in passing, some people wonder whether Paul's words here ought to have some impact on what happens to the bodies of Christians when they die. Paul makes lots, doesn't he, of the body being sown. And so some see in these verses an argument against cremation and for burial. wonder how he'd respond to that. See, Paul's imagery of the body being sown, buried, it's just that. It's imagery shaped by his analogy of the seed being planted. And so it's a mistake to make the imagery do more than Paul intended when he first used it. Paul's focus, easy to see, is on the transformation of our present bodies into a resurrection body. And so whether or not a body is buried or cremated is irrelevant. God is able to give to each body just as he has determined And of course, when you think about it, not everyone is able to choose what happens to their body in death. And it would be a strange use of Paul's teaching to suggest that, well, unless your earthly body is buried, your resurrection body is in jeopardy. No, no. Paul is comparing our bodies now with what God will transform our bodies into then. Because the Corinthians, remember, were questioning the whole idea of a resurrection body. I mentioned last time that the possibility that perhaps one factor in their denial of the resurrection body was their mistake that they had already arrived spiritually. Throughout the letter of this to the Corinthians, Paul attacks this spiritual arrogance. Perhaps the Corinthians denied the need for their own resurrection because they already had everything. Spiritually, things were as good as they could get. So they thought. They certainly had this attitude of spiritual triumph, but it was misplaced. The problem was their timing was a bit out. A bit like the Bulldogs fans at halftime on Friday night. (laughs) The Corinthians were celebrating the end of the game before the game had ended. And so Paul corrects their timing with the idea that we read in verse 44. Verse 44 he says, It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Point two on your outline. Once more Paul's comparing the body now with the body then. But the words he uses are interesting. Now he says the body is natural. Then the body will be spiritual. And the word he uses for spiritual is the very same word the Corinthians were claiming for themselves now, scattered throughout the letter. They were claiming to have have completely arrived spiritually now. But Paul corrects them and says, no, 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 you've misunderstood the timing. The game hasn't finished. You need to look to the future, to the day of resurrection. The truly spiritual body can only come then. He says, the natural body first, then the spiritual body. And it's to prove his point 
that Paul turns to consider the ultimate first man, Adam, and the ultimate second man, Jesus. Verse 45. Verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. Paul says the timing is simple. The natural comes first, followed by the spiritual. Adam came first, Jesus came second. Adam was a living being. He became the father of the entire human race. From him, we all inherit the same natural body. Sadly, of course, it's a weak body. It's a dishonoured body. It's a perishable body because it's stained with sin, you see. It's a body that groans. It's a body of death. It's a body of temptation. It's a body that belongs to this old age of sin and death. And if this was the only body we could expect, if this were it for eternity, that would be a grim prospect indeed. But Jesus, the man from heaven, came as the new Adam, the last Adam, the founder of a brand new humanity. Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, became, Paul says, a life-giving spirit. Jesus grants new life to the sons and daughters of Adam. It's what we saw last time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22. As in Adam all die, so in Christ we will all be made alive. See, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of the resurrection of all those who belong to him. Those of us who have come to Jesus in trust and faith, we are united to Jesus. We bear his spirit in our hearts. We are being changed by his spirit and his word into his likeness. And when he returns, that great day when he comes back, our present perishable bodies of death will be redeemed. They'll be transformed. Verse 48, verse 48, As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. That's us. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's us who belong to Jesus. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. That's our certain hope. We shall bear the likeness of Jesus. As he was raised, so shall we be raised. As his earthly body was transformed into a resurrection body fit for forever, so shall our body. Is that a great hope? It's a fantastic hope for those who belong to Jesus. To be like Jesus. To bear his likeness. Imagine that. To think like Jesus. To choose like Jesus every moment forever. Imagine an eternity in which God says to each one of us, look, I just want you to spend the rest of forever doing whatever you want. And exactly what we want will be exactly the right thing. You know, now, whenever we have an idea, it's always a bit mixed, isn't it? Our motives are mixed. There's always a shadow over all of our thoughts. There's a dark side to it. But then, no mixed motives. No risk of hurting others or being hurt. For our living and our choosing will be completely free of sin's shadow. 
We have never, ever experienced life like that. And yet we will if we belong to Jesus. For that's the future of the people of Jesus. But look, it is our future. It's not yet our present. It's our certain hope. But who hopes for what they already have? The Corinthians, they claimed that they had it all now. They had no need of a resurrection. They were wrong. The game was still in play. The final whistle had yet to be blown. They were still dwelling in their natural body. Their transformed resurrection body was yet to come. And brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. It's a mistake to claim the blessings of the future here in the present. It's an error of timing. We see that same error today often when it comes to healing. The expectation of full and complete healing in the here and now is a mistake of timing. It's a misplaced hope. It's hoping for something now that will only be delivered then. Because when you think about it, how could these natural bodies, these earthly bodies, these perishing, weak, groaning, sin-scarred bodies, how could they ever be physically whole? How could they ever not be decaying? And yet there are Christian people who expect and who preach and who claim that belonging to Jesus now opens a doorway to complete healing now. I know of Christian chaplains in hospitals who face this all the time as people claim that just with, an, with just enough faith in Jesus, the cancer will be healed, the disease will be cured. I know that Christian brothers and sisters who suffer from long-term illness or pain are told that they need not suffer so much. I know someone who is blind who was regularly pulled up in shopping centres by Christians saying they would pray for this person so that they need not be blind. They don't need to be sad. They don't need to be sick. They don't need to have that back pain. Jesus died to heal them of that. Please hear me clearly. Does the Lord heal disease and sickness and pain in the here and now? Yes. Is it right to pray that the Lord might heal someone's disease or sickness or pain in the here and now? Yes. So where's the wrong? Where's the error? The error is in expecting that God will always answer yes to those prayers in the here and now. That's wrong. He never promises that. He promises groaning. He promises hardship. He promises suffering. He promises discipline. Jesus in his death took, up, took upon himself our infirmities, our diseases. The scripture clearly teaches that. But to claim from that scripture that all that Jesus was doing in his death and resurrection was winning for us physical healing in the here and now, that would be to empty the cross of Christ of glory. That would be an empty victory indeed. It's like Paul said back in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all of men. The claim that faith in Jesus leads to physical and emotional healing in the here and now, it's not to claim too much, it's to claim too little. It's to claim too little. Faith in Jesus leads to, to physical and emotional healing for life everlasting faith in jesus secures the certain hope of a resurrection body 
a body without sin, a body raised imperishable, a body raised in glory, a body raised in power, a spiritual body, a body fit to inhabit the new creation forever and ever and ever. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. See, these are earthly bodies of flesh and blood. They are temporary. Our natural bodies will be transformed into spiritual bodies. Just as we have borne the likeness of Adam, so we shall bear the likeness of Jesus. When's it all going to happen? On the day that Jesus comes back. The day of trumpets and transformation. Point three on your outline, verse 51. Let me read. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The we, of course, is Christians. What Paul describes here is only true for those who belong to Jesus, and it will take place on that day when Jesus returns. And we need to remember, of course, that Paul here is describing really what is indescribable. <laughs> when you think about it, descriptions only work by comparing something to something else, something else that's known. But really what Paul is seeking to describe here is incomparable. That's why here, just like elsewhere in the Bible, Paul resorts to imagery to describe the events of that last day. Will there be a literal trumpet blast? Not sure. Maybe, doesn't matter either way. Certainly, though, the image of a trumpet blast, it signifies the rule and the authority of the Lord that no one can stand in his way. It's the arrival of the royal procession of the King of Kings. And at that moment, some Christians will have already died. But importantly, Paul, Paul describes the death of a Christian before Jesus comes back as sleeping. They're just asleep, he says. It's a great image of Christian death because sleeping implies that you wake up. And that's exactly the Christian hope. Death is not the end. Death is a sleep from which Jesus will awaken his people. Some will sleep, Paul says. Others will be awake, will be alive when he comes back. But all will be changed. All will be transformed like that in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. We will be changed so that we will now bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The Apostle John says, When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 53, Paul says, The perishable will clothe itself with the imperishable. It must, of course, because the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What's it going to look like? difficult to say will our resurrection body bear any resemblance to our natural body now lots of us maybe are hoping the answer to that is no <laughs> well maybe we're thinking well that's okay as long as it's, it's me at 20 as opposed to me at 60 will we recognize each other not sure there are no explicit answers to these questions in the bible we can speculate but we've got to remember that that's what it is. It's speculation. From what Paul writes in this chapter, there is some continuity between our bodies now and our bodies then. 
Although a seed is very different to the plant it produces, there's still continuity between the seed and the plants. But we need to recognise that Paul's stress in this chapter is on the difference as opposed to the similarities. Can we learn anything from Jesus' resurrection body? Clearly, Jesus, his resurrection body was different. He could appear in locked rooms. He seemed to be able to appear in all sorts of different places. Yet he ate and he could be touched and he was recognisable. But was Jesus' body then, before returning to the Father, was it different to after his ascension? We don't know. On these things, Bible-believing Christians will discuss and disagree, and we're going to continue to do that until the day itself, and then we'll know for sure. But what we do know now is that it will be exactly right. Our resurrection body then will be perfect for an eternity in relationship with the Lord and with one another. We'll have no complaints. No one will be grumbling, that's for sure. Our present natural body will be transformed on that great and glorious day. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Wow. With the resurrection of Jesus, the power of sin and death was defeated. With the return of Jesus and the resurrection of all his people, death itself will be done away with. No more. Paul's quoting there from Isaiah chapter 28 in the Old Testament. And in that chapter, death is described as the shroud that enfolds all people. And in Isaiah, we're looking forward to the day when that shroud will be no more. When death will be no more. When death will be swallowed up in victory. And that will be the day when Jesus comes back. What a day it will be. The beginning of the rest of forever. The beginning of an eternity without death, without sin, without sorrow, without grief, without sickness, without tears, without goodbyes, without terror. Life. Life to the full. Love. Light. Peace. Right now, death is a mocker. Death seems to be the one who's winning. But then, on that last day, death itself will be mocked. See it there in verse 55? Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? No sting then. No victory. No death. Verse 57. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, on that day we will share in the triumph of Jesus. He who suffered death for us, he who was raised for us, he who will return for us, we will share in his victory. And the victory songs, the victory celebrations will resound throughout eternity, forever. I really like reading the Narnia Chronicles, which will become trendy, of course, since the movie. My favourite one is the last book of the, of the Chronicles called The Last Battle. And uh, I don't know if you know much about the stories, but there's children... And uh, at the end of the last battle, the children actually die. And they go to what in the book is Aslan's country, which we might call to be with Aslan, who is the Christ figure. And they're not sure where they are, and suddenly there is Aslan. And this is what he says to them. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. 
And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's our future. And like we thought about last time, that future is so great, it's got to impose itself on our present. Such a glorious future has got to make a difference to our present. And that's where Paul took us to last time in verse 32, and that's where he returns once more in verse 58. Point four on your outline. Let's have a look at verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's our encouragement, brothers and sisters. It's a powerful one, I reckon. It's because of our future resurrection then that now we stand firm. It's because of our rest in the Lord and his glory then that now we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord and his kingdom exactly what we thought about last time that Dave reminded of us earlier that two days on our calendar this day and that day because that day is most certainly coming today we stand firm in Jesus today we give ourselves fully to the work of Jesus today we know that everything done in the name of Jesus has meaning and purpose and worth I wonder if you could point to a specific moment in the week that has just been where you made a decision where you made a choice that was shaped by your resurrection. Surely you must have. Surely there must have been a moment this week where you you took a gulp of breath and and you introduced Jesus and your life in him in a conversation with an unbeliever this week. Surely you considered that Jesus may return at any moment and now is the day of salvation. This week most certainly there was temptation pushing in on you, calls upon your heart and your mind to give up on Jesus, to draw back from Jesus, to disobey Jesus. Surely then the truth of your resurrection empowered you to say no and to turn to Jesus once more in love and trust and obedience. Brothers and sisters, it's the truth of our resurrection then which shows us the power and purpose of praying now. The defeat of death then shows us the significance of living fully for Jesus now. The richness and abundance of life then teaches us to loosen our grip on our possession and our riches now. The truth of of the glory of life everlasting then frees me from chasing glory and success in this life here and now. The gift of a resurrection body imperishable and immortal then frees us from obsessing about the size of my bottom or my grey hairs or my illness. Infinitely better though, the truth of the resurrection then means that my present struggle with sin now, as hard as it is, it's not forever. 
It'll soon be over. And so I'm empowered to say no to sin even today. And even if I fail, I need not despair. For Christ died for our sins, was buried, and after three days rose again. And he's coming back. And when he comes back, we will all be changed. These are the truths we need to remember. These are the truths we need to remind each other of. That day is the lens which keeps us focused on the things today that really matter. Because that day is coming, today is the day we stand firm and unmoved. Because that day is coming, today is the day we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord and his kingdom. Because that day is coming when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.